Who the bloody hell's that? Should indeed. You're listening to the Corona Diaries, a sometimes random and often irreverent attempt to understand the psyche of singer Steve Hogarth. Hello and welcome to chapter 49 of the Corona Diaries. And I'm I'm here with a cup of tea. And H is on H is on the what are you on? You're on the Corona. What's mm. that? The Corona oh. Diaries. Our Corona Extra for a Corona Diaries. I should have thought about that. We're recording a bit later. Before you get alarmed, it's not our normal 9:30 in the morning. We were due to record at nine this morning. <laughs> And it was all going to be a bit tight, so we we thought, no, let's 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 do it in the evening, a I bit know, more chillax. So so it's it's sort of twenty to seven, and 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 I'm on a I'm on a brew, and H is on a beer, and he's a long way down a beer as well. Yeah, I've had a busy day. Have you? Yeah. You you said you've been at the coal face. I've been at the, the white heat of of the coal face, right? If that's possible, I've been at the right. dark, cold, white hot coal face. Before we start, the one thing I need to say is that I listened when I listened to Forty Eight before it went out. I heard something in the diary reading that I'd not I'd not picked up on when I'd read it, yeah. and that's this comment of you holding court in a doorway like hmm. Santa Claus. Oh. No, it was only because I think it was was that the Oxford Apollo. It was one of them, and. Um, I think it was raining outside, so rather right. than go out and do the the autographs and the pictures, I think I said to the tour manager, "Bugger that! I'm stay, I'm staying indoors. Bring them in one at a time." So he brought them in one at a time. So it was a bit like Santa's grotto. You know? <laughs> <laughs> that could have gone downhill very, very quickly. And, and what would you like signing, little boy? <laughs> Come and sit over here and tell me what you'd like for Christmas. Exactly. Yes, right. Okay, probably best we avoid that. And I'll it's explain going to why you can't have it. A bit like with my own children. <laughs> right, so anyway, anyway, we're going to move on. We're going to move on to the difficult second album, aren't we? Because let's face it, we've had four episodes of, of 1989, lots of seasons end stuff, and everything's pretty much gone to plan, hasn't it? Yeah, I I think it more or less did. Yeah, the season's end was the whole the whole uh, process of, of re- recording it, writing it, and then touring it. Um, couldn't really have gone better. No, no. So you have eighteen months, and apart from the odd hissy fit on first first days of the tour, hissy fit, it goes fairly well. You become <laughs> a god in in South America. <laughs> you do a tour of the US, which I imagine I imagine will have been fun. Lots of people on the edges, very few people in the middle, I would have thought, if that, if, 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 if it went to plan um, <laughs> or went as normal. And then so you, you, you come back 18 months in. So what are we talking, summer of, summer of 90, about that sort of time? What for holidays? When uh, we start thinking about holidays? The summer of 90 
That's right. We we went to a place called Stanbridge Farm down near Brighton. No, weirdly, Brighton again, but a totally different place. I think it's a place we'd heard of while we were at the Mushroom Farm, which we wish we could have afforded to be at. Um, and so when we went back, we decided, well, let's be at the one we couldn't afford to be at. Then at least we'll feel like we've moved up. Mm. So we went over there and we I think we did a deal. Um if we'd known how long we were going to be there, we'd have done a much tougher deal, I think. But uh, we we thought we were only going for a few weeks, maybe a couple of weeks. And I do know that when uh, when we moved in there, I remember Smicky, our, our uh, sort of assistant. Smick's main function was to go and buy Ian fags and Kit Kats. Uh, <laughs> That wasn't his official title. His official title was much grander, but what he actually did was he existed in case Ian needed anything. Um, and um, as, it, as is quite often with, with, with any member of our crew, mostly as a way of silently purloining them early on and convincing them that they worked for him, but that they can also do other bits for other members of the band as a last resort. Um so most of the crew <laughs> are under the impression they work for Ian. And and Smick was no exception. And and I remember him being by the by the pool, there was a swimming pool at, at Stanbridge's as well. I remember he was sat by the pool in a fishing chair or something, with one of those enormous mobile phones, you know, like a breeze block. <laughs> uh, and a pair of shorts, no shirt, looking very tanned and relaxed and glamorous um, the day we arrived because I think he'd already come up the the day before to supervise the loading in of the equipment and to ensure that Ian had plenty of fags and Kit Kats before he got there. Um, And he'd stayed over um, the night before we'd all shown up. So we showed up. He was already half naked by the pool in the sunshine of glorious sun. Um... And we were there so long that the day we moved out, we moved out in six snow. We thought we were going for a fortnight. And we were there from June until I think it was well into December. Um, So we wrote the album rather more slowly than we we thought we were going to and probably spent, I don't know, (laughs) a very nice family house on uh, on stu- on rehearsal time, just writing mm. it. Mm. And I, I need to aside just a bit then, because is there a Brando kind of thing going? Is 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 he in? Is he the mafia within the band? Then is it one of those kind of things? Does he have that kind of slight Brando way about him? That unspoken kind of thing of you know I'll 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 do you something but in the future I may need a favour. <laughs> I don't understand the machinery of right. of how Ian operates. Uh, right, I think it's part charm. In fact, it's definitely part charm because he's very charming. Um, and it's and the rest of it is just a kind of unspoken gravity that he possesses. I don't know if he's aware of. I think he is aware of it, to be honest. Um, but it comes naturally to him. Right. So it's it's charm and gravity with a slight edge then. 
Oh, for years I thought I worked for Ian. There was a very, <laughs> there was a very, <laughs> there was a very funny afternoon actually, when because you know um, at, at one point I don't know which album that was in more recent times, but still a long time ago, a good sort of twenty one, twenty two years ago, when we first took Lucy under our wing, uh, we poached her from EMI, and um, we asked her if she she fancied working for us, and she came. Um, she came to work for us. Um, and over a period of time, I think she came out on the road with us a couple of times, and over a period of time, Ian and Lucy sort of became a, a, an item. <laughs> and it got to a point where they decided they'd better let the band know because it had ramifications, obviously. Yeah. Conflict of interest. And so... Ian sort of broached the subject with us one at a time rather than having us all together. Perhaps he, he would have felt outnumbered. So he did us one at a time. And uh, he said to me, um, uh, I, 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 I could do with a chat today, Steve. Um, not at the studio, you know, maybe around the corner in the, in the pub shall we say, two o'clock. And I went, yeah, sure, Ian. And I thought, oh, fuck, I'm fired. I really thought it was going to fire me. <laughs> so I sort of turned up and sat down. What is it then? You know, and he went, well, you know, you know Lucy and, you know, me, we've been getting to know each other. And I thought, Thank fuck for that. <laughs> <laughs> How is that all? I thought I... <laughs> I thought I was fired. <laughs> so, so th there is a strange kind of feeling that that you know you work for Ian, um, and uh, I I don't know if I still feel like that. Um, I mean, Ian looks after the money, which which you know gives him a certain power, whether he likes it or not. And I I occasionally say to him, you know, if I were you. I'd take all that money. I'd have gone to Rio by now. I'm amazed you haven't just legged it. Uh, Hence no, the so. reason why they don't let you anyway. <laughs> so, respect him. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he's just waiting for the right moment <laughs> and the right size of the bank, bank yeah. balance before he actually... It's got to be worth doing, hasn't it? Because you can only do it once. You can only do it once. <laughs> so so we're, in, we're down in Brighton. We've picked somewhere nice this time. Uh, have, pop yeah. along for a fortnight to write 15 songs. And unsurprisingly, I mean, the way history's played out, it, it takes a bit longer. Mm -hmm. um, it did. I moved into uh, what had been Warren Cuccarillo's room because Duran Duran had been in there before us. And uh, there was still all the bits of silver paper in the corners. I've told you all this, haven't I? <laughs> You've told me it. <laughs> <laughs> I think we made a decision about libel. Is it libel when it's on tape, or is it? I can never. never. <laughs> These are hard facts. Warren, <laughs> everywhere Warren goes, he use, for, for for a kickoff, he's usually naked, if not if not practically naked, because um, uh, Nick Belcher, who gets a mention in the in in the diary, who was tour managing us on the Brave tour, he, he tour managed Duran Duran. And he said, he said, you know, I, I spent more time trying to keep clothes on Warren than just about anything else. Um, 
And Warren, when, when he moves into a, any kind of hotel room, he's got a flight case with decorating materials in it um, that, he, that he has taken into the hotel, uh, which is silver foil and lighting gels and, and various stuff. And, and he moves into his hotel room. He sticks silver foil on all four walls so that there's silver inside. Probably so he can look at himself <laughs> naked. Yeah, and, to check he's not wearing clothes. <laughs> and then he detunes the television to white noise. Can you still do that with the new ones? I don't. With the L- LEDs? Ooh, I you, do you know you what? That's a re- you might be able to. I think you can. You just. Uh, I don't know if there's an analog signal anymore. But anyway, that's what he used to do back in the day. He would detune the telly to white noise and then put a light and gel over it, turn it into a big lamp. Um, and when I got to Stanbridge's, I'd heard these stories, and, and when I got to Stanbridge's, I had Warren's room, and there were still bits of silver paper in all the corners with sellotape on them, you know, where, the, where they'd removed all, all, of Warren's, all of Warren's silver foil, all his, ba- <laughs> his Baco foil had come down and, uh, you know, left little, little bits in the corners. Um, and you couldn't get Coronation Street, I bet. <laughs> no. <laughs> I tell you, from the stories I've heard about Warren, it's a miracle I even climbed into that bed. <laughs> so we, we've talked in the past about that the, the writing of Holidays was was a little bit tricky. And, and there was a, you know, your... your desire to press on with projects and make progress quite quickly hit a kind of a a brick wall um mm. of the way that that the band sort of wrote so we have we you know we have we have talked about that and then there was a little bit of a uh you know a, a bit of a wobble in the middle you took it you took a couple of weeks out didn't you um <laughs> i was sent home uh, yes <laughs> <laughs> yes uh, oh, go I home and think about what you've home. done they don't send me home anymore i, I I think back to those days. I've reminisced. <laughs> um, but did you go into the process? Was there because confidence would have been riding high coming out of everything to do with seasons end? Was there this kind of little assumption that you know what we'll just go and we'll knock out fifteen songs? Did did you know? Was it just that one of those things where you just hit a bit of reality? Maybe. I mean, the band had spent quite a lot of time writing what they'd already got when 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 we met up. Yeah. So they'd, you know, they'd undergone, a, a, you know, a good a good few months of the process before Fish liked it, and so then when Fish liked it, they still had the products of the jams because they were always written by jamming. So they still had all of those jams. Um, either as jams or partly arranged when we met. And maybe because it was all their ideas that they were, they'd all jammed and had a good, good long listen to and decided were good things. When I came steaming in and, oh, we could put that with this and we could put that with this and why don't we do this and why don't we go to there? Everybody was going, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but when we came to to write Holidays in Eden, because 
we were writing the album really from zero, from the mm. blank page, both musically and lyrically. I still had that, we could do this, and we could do this, and why don't we put that with this, and why don't we do this, and, you know, I can write mid late for that. What, what about this? Uh, I had that head on, and everybody was going, oh, 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 dear. Oh, mm. no, oh, no. That's not what we what we would have done. Um, so that was that was the the point in the process where I began to learn how the band had written to date. You know the process, um, and I, you know, as as I said, I was I was all when we were at Stanbridge's, I was always frantically trying to finish everything off. Mm. Um, I mean, we still have the same problem to a degree um, right up to the present day that, that that when we're writing, we'll jam and we'll jam and we'll jam and we'll record the jams and we'll listen through to the jams and, you know, hold our scorecards up on whether something's good, okay or rubbish. And um, that's how the band like to work and, and they like to find jams that have happened that were interesting things and use them to create the songs out mm. of by kind of nailing them together, if they will nail together. Um, and th there's another way of working, which is to listen to an idea and go, that's a good idea. Where could it go? Oh, well, mm. it's in this. You know, what about F minor to B flat after that? And what about what about this these chords you know and what if i what if i did this a little descent or a little rising thing or whatever and that's what uh we now call beard stroking you know what if what if we were to what if we were to what if i was to do this and they don't like beard stroking no uh they think that beard stroking is the last refuge <laughs> of of an imbecile. <laughs> <laughs> How do you feel about beard stroking? <laughs> well, I've got to the point with beard stroking where I've realised it's a waste of time, <laughs> irrespective of whether I feel it has any merit or not. I've yeah. learned through experience that beard stroking and, hey, what if it went to F minor, man, mm. um, is... Is, is is doesn't really get get me and therefore us anywhere. Um, so there's not a lot of beard stroking that gets through. There is still some, but there's not a lot. And and so back when we were writing Holidays in Eden, I was naturally just I was in full on beard stroking and finished the song off mode, whilst everybody else was going, "What's he doing? What's he doing?" Yeah. We're not ready. We're not ready. It hasn't, it hasn't sat in a cellar for six months. This idea yeah. yet. We can't. We can't mess with it. It needs. It needs to be. It needs to be. It needs rest. Mm. Um, and so the ideas needed rest. And so that that process ended up becoming a little bit fraught because. I wasn't used to it and so I was getting impatient and feeling like, you know, we we were wasting a lot of time where we could be just getting on, finishing the songs. 
and certain other elements within the band, which is probably everybody except me, were feeling rushed, were feeling uncomfortable. Um, that perhaps, given time and space and serendipity, stronger things could be used than the stuff I was coming up with on the spot, beard stroking. And that, that may well be true, to be fair. Um, who knows? And, and who knows? Um, I mean, the, th the, the thing about music is everyone has an opinion. Everyone, you know, one man's mate is another man's poison. <laughs> no one idea man... where you were going with that, but I'll carry it. I'm fine. It, it all man's... ended fairly happily in the end. <laughs> One man's Van Halen is another man's poison. Um, so who knows what what is a good idea and what isn't. Uh, but you, you've got to, because we're a democracy, all five of us kind of have to be happy. Hmm. That's all that matters. Was Maybe there two. anything, if you think back, so you, you, you obviously made a start, you got so far in, you, you got sent home. Um, but at the point when you were sent home, was the stuff there then that actually ended up pretty much existing as it was at that point in time? I guess I'm asking whether there was, you know, in your way of wanting to get things finished and to take that momentum and take that energy and that excitement and move it forward quickly, you know, because you've, you've also said that when you jam now, that the magic happens in the first 20 minutes. Yeah. Which then... We we hadn't learnt that at that stage. Right, right, okay, fine. <laughs> so we'd, we'd spend eight hours, you know, right. uh, get, get get nowhere, not realising that the good stuff was going to happen early on and then we, we'd have been better off getting in the car and going to Brighton. Um, but we did, we did slog away at it back then. Uh, but to answer your question, yeah, most of it really, to be honest. I, I think a bit like I brought... A bit like I brought Easter to the band as a kind of finished song, really, and and the five four section was sort of tacked on the end after the guitar solo. Um, I also brought the party mm. as a finished thing. Uh, that wasn't something I'd written with how we lived. That was something I'd actually sat down and and you know conjured up, um, possibly during the the back end of the season's end writing se sessions, maybe even during the holidays in Eden sessions. But I definitely just came up with that, um, on, you know, on, on, on my own. And I think the only thing that the band added to it was the, um, you know, the C major to... Well, that wasn't going to mean anything, is it? No, but you mean it's the guitar, the guitar kind of repeat, isn't it? Hang on a bit. <laughs> yeah, I get it. Dang. I wrote all that as well. And the... I think we jammed that in the yeah. room. Yeah. 
No, I wrote that as well. So it was only the it was only that bum doom doom doom. We came up with together as a band and 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 threw that into the the middle of it. We'd probably already done that before I got sent home. I think we'd record I think we'd uh put no one can together. Yeah. Before I went home. Uh we hadn't done cover my eyes that happened really late on that didn't even happen at uh, um stanbridge farm i don't think right at some point you know the whole time we were in the studio at stanbridge farm working on holidays in eden we thought chris kimsey was the producer yes we'd got him in the frame to produce it and then towards the latter stages of being in stanbridge Chris, I think he came over once, one weekend, and we had a meeting and we played him some stuff and he had a listen and he went away. And then the Stones got wind of the fact that he'd been and uh, told him he couldn't because he was working on the Steel Wheels album with them in the week. And I think he'd been coming up, I think he came up to Stanbridge on his day off to meet us and start listening to what we'd got. And and according to him, uh, who knows, but according to him, he got a letter from the Stones lawyers saying that um, on his days off, they were to be days off. He wasn't to go and make music with anyone else. And so he wasn't allowed to... And, and the, the Steel Wheels album had kind of overrun a little bit and it slowly became apparent that he wasn't going to be able to do it. So then we needed a producer. And so at a very late stage, we started casting around for someone else and, and Chris Neal came into the frame. Um, and it was Chris Neal who put together Cover My Eyes from a, an idea that Rothers had had with the... Steve wrote that melody. Um, I think it's the only one he's ever written, you know, and said, why don't you sing this? Uh, um, you know, and I went, yeah, sure, I'll have a go. And, and it worked really well. Um, so we'd got that against the dunk, 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 dunk thing. Um, but that was all it was. It was just that uh, going round and round. And Chris Neal heard it and got very excited about it. And he said, look, let, let me just, let me get hold of this and turn this into a song. He said, I can turn this into a hit song in 10 minutes. You know, he was very much pop producer. Boom, 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 boom. I can, all the things that I'd been trying to do, they wouldn't let me do. Jesus, I'm surprised they didn't shoot him on the spot. <laughs> I think I think some, to quote Keith Richards, some fish are just too big to fry. <laughs> And uh, uh, Chris Neal was too big to fry. They just went with it. Uh, and so, you know, we he put Cover My Eyes together really quickly uh, from, you know, that verse I'd heard in Simon's car, the Cover My Eyes, the mm. light falls on her face. Um, I must have sung that on at some point, you know, either for a laugh or just to see if it would go. Um and Chris had got all of these bits that, uh, and he just said, bam, let's let's do that and I, I can put that together. And he put it together really quickly 
And I'm thinking, oh, God, it's the verse from Simon's car, you know. But I did write it, you know, but, but uh, <coughs> you know, I hope, hope, hope it ended up in court. Um, and I think Colin's less than pleased about it to this day. But I, I did write it. It's not mm. like I'd nicked it from anyone else. It was my shit. Mm. And if I can't use my own shit, well, why not? Um so that was cover my eyes, and then of course when Chris Neal, that you know either the same day or the day before or the day after, he slapped dry land down, you know, and said you should cover this. It's amazing. It's an amazing song. It's a hit song, um, and I'd really like to cover it because I think you need you need three hits because mm. he came from that school. You've got to have a three yeah. hits on an album, or there's no point in doing it. it doesn't you know fuck the art you need three hits hmm. what you you know you can have art if you want art but you need three hits that was chris's view and he, he thought dryland was a hit he thought cover my eyes was a hit and he thought no one can was a hit we'd already written no one can he hammered cover my eyes together and then so we got two hits in his mind we needed a third one and he, somebody somewhere played him, not me, somebody somewhere played him Dry Land. And he said, that's an amazing song and that's a hit. Um, you should cover it. Hmm. So he managed, I mean, you know, he did really, he managed to persuade the band to do it. And uh, they were the three hits in, in Chris's mind. In reality, there weren't any. But, but you know, that was his plan. But here's, so here's the interesting thing then for me, because if you look at some of the other things on the album, so take Waiting to Happen as an example, and I don't know who was the driving force between, you know, behind writing that musically, but that's, that's a very traditional pop song format. Yeah, that just never occurred to us. You know, we, we all thought it was a really, a really nice song, but I don't think anybody thought of it as a hit. No, but when you think of it like that, it, you just, it, you know, I mean, no one can exactly the same. Really, really, you know, and, and, and that was a band song. So Chris comes in and no one can exist, you know, exists. Mm. And he's, he's absolutely nailed on. You would think so. Yeah. <laughs> but also the format of it is, it's not just the song. I mean, the reason why the song should work, the reason why I can see why Cover My Eyes was harder was because in reality, the fo- it's not a straight ahead pop format, whereas no one can absolutely is. You know, Dryland is waiting to happen are. Mm. You don't need to educate the audience to understand what those things are. No. They should no, recognise them straight away as, well, that's a pop song and I know what's I know it's going to start with this. So there's the intro, there's the verse, there's the chorus, there's the verse, there's the middle eight, there's the chorus again. I understand how it all works. Yeah, I mean, the irony is, and, and, and probably will always remain, that quite often it's the album tracks that yeah. take all the time, the, the ones that actually commercially aren't that important. They're the ones that, that you sweat blood over and, you know, argue over and, and get upset about and go back to and rework and faff about with. Um, and the one that took all the time was um, This Town 100 Nights. Yeah. That took bloody ages. And we, we would, uh, 
particularly 100 Nights, you know, from the bam, down, 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 down. Um, 100 Nights of Fun, the, the number of times I sat and sang 100 Nights of Fun and Games, 1,000 Empty Glasses. Um, feel it, Jane stayed the same as each day passes. All, all of that. The the amount of times I sat and sang that, we get we'd get we get three minutes into it and it'd just stop and we go, well, what are we get? Where where's it gonna go? You know, and we 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 banged our head against that one for yonks and yonks and yonks. So that took that was, I think that was one of the last things to come together in Stanbridge's, uh, unaided, and then and then after Chris Neal came into the frame, then Cover My Eyes was written. Mm. But but I was sent home during the title song, Holidays in Eden. Um, that was that was the point at which the band felt they just needed a little bit of time without somebody mm. beard stroking and trying to push it ahead. They just needed a bit bit of time to relax with it. And that's why um that's why I got sent home. Um, but as I say, they don't do that anymore, and it's a sort of a shame, really. Especially not on a nice sunny, sunny yeah. day. Yeah, but, uh, when the forecast's good. Yeah, if they sent me home this week, I've been delighted. <laughs> <laughs> the the weird thing about holidays is probably it's the album that probably splits the fans more than than any other, I would say. Um, and yet, when I when you see feedback and when people list songs they really like, a lot of the songs from Holidays also then appear in lists of songs that people wouldn't want to do without. You know, mm. I can't imagine a world without Splintering Heart in it. I can't imagine a world without, you know, this without this time and Rake's Progress and 100 Nights in it. So well, there's, there's, to be there's fair, stuff in Chris there. Chris Neal, he, he, he completely rebuilt Splintering Heart as well for the better. Yeah. It was his idea to have all those pulsing electronic loops at the front of it because when when we'd first done it, it was much heavier and guitar-driven all the way through, um, which was really exciting, but but it's stronger the way it is now. I, hmm. I thought that all along. But, I mean, I would put that in as one of the two or three great live set openers. Yeah, we've often opened with it. You know, that, yeah. I think Invisible Man's a great opener. Um, you know, um, Sunset Town, for obvious reasons, it, you know, makes a nice opening track. But, I mean, you keep coming back to Splinter and Heart as an absolutely great show opener. Uh, and yeah, I, I just always... never really quite understood why Holidays, for a lot of people, is such an emotive album in the negative, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think that might have been our fault, you know, because we've probably... We've probably done interviews and said it's our pop album or something like that yeah. you know in our minds it's our it's our pop work and that's probably anathema to your prog purists yeah just as prog is anathema to you know as a label to a lot of people yeah. as well or oh, it certainly was it's it's a bit hipper as a notion than, than it it was for many years but it, it still it still turns a lot of people off that label Mm. I suppose that the only thing in that that then just doesn't make an enormous amount of sense is that if you want two pieces of three-minute pop, then Kaylee and Lavender are also those two minutes of three-minute pop, so nobody seemed to have a problem with those 
as pop songs. That's the bit I can't quite get my head around. But no. um, you know, Sugar Mice exactly the same. If you want a you know piece of pop, then it's a it, there, there's a piece of pop. But anyway, anyway, we'll leave that to one side. Um, you mentioned. We'll finish on this before we go for a bit of diary. You mentioned something about themed evenings when you were at Hookend and Stanbridge. Themed dinners. Yeah. Because I couldn't remember whether I'd, I'd, you know, told told you about the the Mexican evening at Stanbridge's. I thought I had. Um, But that, that remains a kind of legendary evening in our memory. Um, and it was a sort of it, the seeds of it were planted uh, before at, at Hook End Manor, I think, when we were recording Season's End. Um, well, I don't know how it all happened, but but we had we had an Indian one night, and the girls made the girls made Indian food. We we would all sit down at this long table and have dinner, and. <laughs> What happened? We kind of dressed up for it. Somebody wore a na- somebody wore a nappy on their head. I remember that in preparation for the the trouble below stairs following an Indian meal. And I think the girls wore Indian clothes when they when they when they brought the Indian food round. And that sort of set us off. And and, and somebody probably mostly said. We should have a backwards dinner. Oh, it could have been one of us. One of us. It wasn't me. Suggested we. Why don't we have a backwards dinner? I said, Well, what's a backwards dinner? Well, you start with port and cigars, <laughs> and then you have, you know, cheese, <laughs> cheese, cheese, cheese. Yeah, you have cheese. Then you have a bread and butter pudding or a flan <laughs> of something or spotted dick, and finish with the main course. And then you then you have a nice prawn cocktail. <laughs> <laughs> and you go upstairs and you're thoroughly sick. But um, that was the idea. So we had a backwards dinner and we did exactly that. And they, um, the girls came into the room backwards, <laughs> carried it in backwards. <laughs> so every, everything was... And, and, all of, and all the pictures were turned the other way around in the room and everything. We really went for it. Uh, so it was a complete reverse evening. Um, and then when we were at Stanbridge's, somebody said, we should have another theme dinner. And so we said, oh, what should we do? What about Mexicans? We, Let's have a Mexican theme dinner. So we'd instruct the staff to to make fajitas and all of that. We've got racks of tequila in um, and... Um, you know, and Coronas and Sols and anything vaguely Mexican. And we'd sent Mickey and Trevor um, to uh, Brighton to the fancy dress shops to get ponchos and massive Mexican hats. And we'd prepared for this for a good couple of weeks. Nobody'd shaved. So we all looked, (laughs) you know, we were getting that kind of hole-in-the-wall gang thing going. Everybody looked like hell. Uh, I'd got the eyeliner on and everything. I think I'd got a tooth blacked out as well. Um, I think we'd all got teeth blacked out. In, in anyway, we, it How prophetic ca- in your case. <laughs> it, it came to the it came to the day of the of the dinner. Trevor was in Brighton hiring all the ponchos and the hats and everything, 
And we were working in the studio and we had one of our awkward moments. And we had a massive disagreement and a falling out. And meanwhile, back in the house, all the fajitas were being prepared and all the food with them, tequila was out and everything was prepared for this Mexican celebration. And nobody wanted to do it because we'd had a row. Nobody, you know, it was the last thing any, any of us wanted to do. So uh, we're all thinking, oh, God, I just want to go home. I just want to go home. Um, Trevor got back from Brighton with the um, with with the fancy dress and he, he kind of sensed the vibe and he said, give me a minute. And he went off out into the fields and he came back with a little tray like an ice cream seller full of mas- magic mushrooms. And he said, I think you'll find these will sort the evening out. <laughs> so we all took some of those. And, of course, by the time we sat down to dinner, everybody was away. Everyone was, everyone was in another place. And um, I, remember the, I remember sitting at this table and all the light, was just it turned like you know you know those old movies where all the mm. colors were really rich and the shiny things were even shinier and had little halos around them i was looking at this room going wow this room looks amazing and the the rice came round um and i put my hand in it all the way in up to my wrist i said oh that feels great and then nobody wanted rice. <laughs> <laughs> and I left my hand in the rice all night. And everybody was, you know, no, nobody shaved for two weeks and everybody got the big hats on and the ponchos and everybody was off their blinking tits. And the, the tequila was going around and everybody was yattering and yappering and about, you know, nobody knew what they were talking about. And then most peculiar... Of all, John Helmer arrived, um, and he had he arrived dressed as sort of Hank Williams, like a really smooth cowboy, um, and he brought a guitar with him, and he was sit, sitting there singing "Get Along, Little Doggies, Little Doggies, Get Along," and he'd come straight from work in London. He was in he, he was in marketing marketing. <laughs> Uh, Marcus and whatever they are, he worked in it for a marketing company in, in London and he was as sober as a judge and he just walked in to this scene of all these people completely off their heads, a bloke with his hand in the rice and, you know, all the tequila going around. He's just sitting there singing little Hank Williams tunes as smooth as you like and as straight as you like in the corner while I'm looking at him thinking, that's weird. Um <laughs> <laughs> and I, all I remember was I went to bed that night and I, I sat on the side of the bed. I took one sock off and my toes were turning into pigs. And I was looking at my toes and they just kept turning into little pigs. And it, I, I, never made it, I never made it out of my clothes. I sat there for what felt like hours just while my toes entertained me on the side of the bed. <laughs> Um, and that was the night I wrote that line as she could see the soil and the trees and uh, smell the soil and the trees and see the succulent light from the little fires in his eyes. 
Pulling shapes uh, pu- out of the pulling night. Pulling shapes out of the night. Because the light, I, w- I looked out the window and there was a light out, out in the sort of courtyard and it was filtering through the, the, the branches of the trees in the mist and the light was dripping like marmalade from one from one branch to another, you know, like thick, gooey, succulent, fruity liquid. And I was standing there looking at it. And and that's where the succulent light came from. It was it was the light dripping through these through these trees because it was I'd had all these mushrooms. I think that's a perfect place to stop and go into diary. Wednesday, 18th of May, London, Hammersmith, Odeon. Woke up late and set about packing and checking out of the Midland Hotel, Birmingham. I signed a photograph of the band and made a present of it to Paul the Porter, who had been so helpful yesterday. Had coffee in the downstairs bar with Ian and Pete. The old dear serving told Ian she couldn't serve him because he was wearing trainers. I could tell we were in the provinces. He offered to remove them and have coffee in his socks, so she acquiesced and told him to hide his feet under the table. Pete arrived in Stars and Stripes baseball boots, so we had to hide his feet too. Good game. Stuff like this always reminds me of all the pettiness that used to go on in Doncaster when I was growing up. There's something quaint about such small-mindedness, but ultimately it's a little sad. It doesn't seem to happen in London. We left Birmingham and drove down to London and I was dropped off at home in Charlton. I was taking my own car into town. There was no one in when I arrived at 1.15. Diz and Niall were out at a tots party and Sophie was at school. I popped round the corner and gave her a kiss in the playground before she went back inside after lunch. I told her I must go to London and that I would see her tomorrow. When I left, she said... I'll see you next week or something. Bless her. She's as disorientated as I am. It's funny, but also a little depressing. I had a coffee and a piece of birthday cake, which was a present from a fan, in the garden and sprayed my precious roses with tumblebug before leaving to drive to the lovely Halcyon Hotel in Holland Park. It was owned by the actor Richard Harris, who opened it in order to have, quote, the kind of place I wouldn't get thrown out of, unquote. Wonderfully posh, but Hellraiser friendly. Sadly, it died with him in 2002. Checked in, feeling a little unwell, and decided to have an hour in bed before the sound check. Woke up feeling much better and went in the bathroom to freshen up. When I emerged naked from the bathroom, I nearly died of fright. Dizzy Spell was sitting on the bed. I hadn't heard her enter the room and I had no idea she was in London. The sense of shock was, fortunately, reduced by tour disorientation, which results in a state of mind where the impossible isn't really that unusual. 
Apparently, her arrival had been planned and executed by Debbie Belshaw and the Aino girls as a treat night off for her and a surprise for me. Yeah. After I stopped screaming, we decided Des would stay for a bath and much-needed peace while I went to soundcheck. I drove over to Hammersmith and ate liver and bacon and mash, courtesy of Emma, who must leave us after tonight. Let's hope we work together again. I enjoyed the sound check. My sound was great on stage and I was singing well. A great relief. I had woke up that morning feeling very hoarse. We returned to the Halcyon where Diz was still relaxing after her bath. I went to the bar for a half while she finished getting ready. I decided against a pre-show snooze, having slept before sound check. The show went well, although I felt a little unsettled generally. The audience were some distance away and it was difficult to monitor their reaction in terms of crowd noise. I thought I sang quite well until the end of the last encore when I really struggled with the space, which was a shame because I felt it took the edge off the whole show. I was forced to revise my opinion somewhat afterwards in the bar as time after time different people said I'd sung really well throughout, especially at the end of the space. I ended up wondering what Privet must have done to it. Chatted in the upstairs bar to Dave Megan and Gary Stevenson, Chaz, Roy, Josie Ayers and numerous others before returning to the Halcyon with Diz to shower. EMI had arranged post-gig drinks in the bar, so we went through and partied until around 3.30. Chatted to Roy about a play he's written which opens at the Garrick in June. It's a musical version of The Fly, and he says it's very funny. I can't imagine it being otherwise. He's invited us to the gala opening. Flicked through photographs taken by Mark from the Today Sessions in Manchester and Newcastle. They were some of the best live shots I've seen of the band. When we played Manchester Apollo, he'd come on stage during Paper Lies and photographed me throughout the song, and these shots were particularly interesting. A side of me I haven't seen in the mirror. Manic and disturbed, almost monks the scream-like. Chatted to EMI girls Cathy, Sophie, Louise, Sandra and Amanda, who seemed to have enjoyed themselves. Nicky'd was there with girlfriend Nicky. He said he thought the Brave show was like a dream and that he loved it. Dizzy seemed to be thoroughly enjoying her night away, chatting with old friends and a few acquaintances that we unfortunately seldom see. Had a last chat with Josie, who was totally pissed by this stage and not making a lot of sense. Got to bed late, late. Diz wanted to take the bed home with her. Saturday, 11th of June, Lucerne Eschenbach Festival. Stayed in bed until around 11. Nick phoned to warn me that my room must be vacated by 12, so I packed and took my case to Nick's room, which was being kept on until 4. It was still raining, which didn't bode well for the open-air show tonight. Maybe it'll cheer up later. Sat around downstairs in the caff with Steve, Mark and Pete and eventually went for a spot of lunch in a crepery by the lake. We were all just killing time really, waiting for Paul to return with the tour bus which would take us out to the festival site. It took about 30 minutes to get there. 
I was still revising the words to warm wet circles, so I hung around on the bus while the other chaps braved the arena and returned with depressing news of much mud and not much audience. Oh dear. Oh well. Nick took us a short walk to a nearby Italian restaurant which had been arranged to provide us with dinner. I sat down with Alan, our lighting director, Brian, our lighting tech, Helen, wardrobe and catering, and Rebecca, caterer, to catch up on their news. Everyone seemed in good form, despite having spent ten hours in a cold, muddy field. God knows how the crowd must feel. The restaurateur was very friendly. His two little girls asked for autographs, and the food was excellent. We returned to the festival site, and I wandered down to the dressing rooms, a sports clubhouse complete with soccer trophies, which reminded me of the dressing rooms at the Cumbria Rock Festival a couple of years ago. By now, it was raining torrentially outside, and my heart sank to think of the poor sods who'd endured a day's existence in a cold, muddy field. I remember travelling all day once to get to Milton Keynes to see the Genesis-Peter Gabriel reunion show at the Bowl, and standing for half an hour in the drizzle before saying, bugger this, and going home again before they even came on stage. Oh, didn't mention the gig. Sunday, 12th of June. Cologne, Tanzbrunnen. Arrived outside the Hyatt Hotel around 930 and staggered out of my bunk to see blue sky and sunshine. That's better. Tonight is an open-air show again, so the weather makes a big difference. Checked into the Hyatt and decided to sleep as I hadn't really slept properly on the bus. It wasn't to be. As I was closing the curtains, I noticed a small stage being set up on the bank of the Rhine outside the hotel. Today is the annual party for the employees of the Hyatt. How do we do it? And the party started as soon as I got one leg into bed. I lay there for about an hour listening to a Californian cabaret band, who were actually very good if you weren't trying to sleep, before giving up and getting up. John A. had arrived and called to say hello, so I met him downstairs for a chat about things in general. He told me that EMI was still very keen to make a solo album at some stage, and that I shouldn't worry too much about the future. He senses that I've been a little low lately. We talked for a while and then met up with the rest of the band to walk down to the gig for sound check. Had a bite to eat and sound checked. The sound on stage was better than yesterday. I suppose the crew had more time. After sound check, I said hello to Steve Hackett, who was opening for us, and had a chat with Peter Rieger, who reaffirmed that Pete Townsend was into the idea of me playing the lead in Tommy next year. We made a date to go to New York and have a look at the existing Broadway production the weekend after I get home from this little stint. Returned to the hotel to find a huge present festooned in balloons in my hotel room. It was a late birthday present from Sandra and Britta, probably our most dedicated German fans. I opened the box to find lots of screwed up newspaper intermingled with little presents. Beads, toys, puzzles, pictures, sweets, bubble liquid. Everybody buys me bubble liquid. And an album of photographs of the band. I was called upstairs for an interview which lasted until we left for the show at seven. The weather had remained dry and sunny 
and we hit the stage to an enthusiastic crowd at eight o'clock for what was to be a most enjoyable gig. There was a high percentage of young kids in the audience, which is always good to see. There seems to be more girls at each successive show. I can't decide whether it's a delayed reaction to the Holidays in Eden album or a consequence of Brave. We also seem to have lost the heavy metal denim jacket brigade, which I inherited back in 1989. Either that or they've had a fashion epiphany. After the show, I showered at the hotel before going out with Pete and Kai from the record label and Petra to a Mexican restaurant round the corner. It always seems to be Mexican in Cologne. Kai likes his tequila. I declined the hard stuff but managed to put paid to three pina coladas which left me somewhat tiddled. We ate chicken fajitas and the EMIs had a bit of a moan about restructuring in the label. They seemed worried and disillusioned. We returned to the Hyatt and I had a last beer with Nick B before going to bed. Monday, 13th of June. Cologne to Poznan. Day off. Woke around 11, packed and went down to check out of the Hyatt. Had a quick coffee with Ian and Mark before climbing aboard the bus for the long drive to Poznan, Poland. Spent all day on the bus chatting and watched One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest with Pete, who'd never seen it before. Went to bed around midnight and drifted in and out of sleep until eventually the toing and froing of the bus told me we were off the beaten track. So I got up and went up front to see that we were deep in the darkness of the Polish countryside and quite lost. We were in the right village because we kept seeing the signs, but there was no obvious trace of the hotel or the airbase it was rumoured to be part of. After a number of U-turns, we tried a lane marked No Entry and discovered a checkpoint with a uniformed guard on duty. He gave us directions to the hotel, which seemed to be a privately run operation in the business of hiring out the officers' quarters to passers-by with the right kind of money. By now, it was four in the morning. The promoter, Andy, was in reception and helped us to check in, which involved handing in our passports. Let's hope we see them again. The bus was parked behind a large iron gate in the military compound. I sensed more than just an element of meet the new boss, same as the old boss, in all this. Oh well, I suppose it's the same the world over to some degree or other. At least we were chums with the boss in this instance. I trundled my suitcase down the path to my accommodation block and into room two, still half expecting armed partisans to come hammering over the horizon into the compound. My room was like something from a 60s housing estate, fitted black G-plan units and decorated cotton tablecloths, thin white curtains and tiled floors with a basic but functional bathroom. There was a TV with a remote control which gave the first clue to modernity. I switched it on to discover only one channel coming to a close with some classical orchestral concert and went to bed. Tuesday, 14th of June, Poznan Arena. I was woken at seven by the plumbing and never quite managed to get back to sleep before giving up and getting up at eleven. 
Outside in the sunshine, amid the trees and the dormitories, I really felt like I'd been magically transported to a prisoner of war movie. After much confusion, I persuaded the women in the reception area to make coffee, which was served in a small vase with an inch of silt in the bottom and accompanied by a tin of condensed milk. I sat gingerly sipping away at it, pouring more and more tinned milk into it in the hope of making it drinkable, and writing up this diary. Men in uniform turned up and asked me for my autograph, for my son, Peter. Signed my name for the soldiers' sons and for the hotel women, and climbed aboard the bus which took us the half-hour journey to the arena at Poznan. We drove through endless housing estates of depressing grey 60s tower blocks, each one bearing a large number in the graphic typeface that the Thunderbirds had. Maybe Jerry Anderson designed the whole thing. Someone quipped that the numbers were there so you could find your way home after a night on the vodka. It's probably true. I found it hard to join in with the jokes. I was quite saddened by the surroundings. I've always harboured a sense of shared guilt for the injustice meted out to the Poles during the carve-up after the war. I'm conscious that a great many of the airmen who laid down their lives in the Battle of Britain had been Polish. We owed them, and we sold them out to Stalin. Anyway, the gig. From the outside, the building looked like a huge concrete flying saucer. There were a dozen or so kids hanging around, looking to say hello and for autographs. We scribbled and went inside, where we held a half-hour press conference. After that, Steve and I were taken by the promoter, Andy, to a radio station for a short interview, which he conducted himself. I think he seems to have things fairly well sewn up here. We were then taken to a record store to do a signing. About a hundred kids were ushered past us, some of whom were in a total state upon meeting us. One young girl stood quietly weeping as I signed my name. I'm not used to it. You want to cuddle them. At the end, we were invited to raid the CD cabinets behind us. I picked up a handful of goodies, including the new Pretenders, Hotel California by the Eagles, Nerve Net by Brian Eno, Ray Charles, yes, Jimi Hendrix, Spin Doctors, Cure, Tori Amos, R.E.M. Not bad for free. Back at the soundcheck, everything seemed to be under control. My sound was very dead, oddly enough, for such a large round hall, but otherwise fine. I returned backstage for a short TV interview and then went to bed for half an hour on the tour bus before getting ready in a sports locker dressing room which possessed the foulest-smelling toilet I have ever had the misfortune to pee into. The show was a good one for me, amazing again to watch people's mouths move to the words which were once just thoughts in my head, and in a language totally alien to a great many of them. There was a keyboard crash during warm, wet circles, which was a bit of a shame, and during the hollow man, Mark went missing. This provided a pause in the middle of the song which turned out to be quite wonderful. That's the thing about mistakes. Every now and then you get an improvement, as Darwin once observed. After the first encore, some clot turned the house lights on and half the audience had left before we were back up for garden party. 
which was then a little confused. Perhaps we should have left it. Shame. After the show, I showered and went outside to meet the hangarounders, sign sleeves, arms, legs, get photographed, get kissed, be given gifts, hugs and fond regards before boarding the bus which was to take us overnight to Warsaw. Thank you, you lovely people. I waved bye-bye from the bus and chatted to Richie, Craig and Bob who had come to film the Poland shows and were coming overnight on the bus. Went to the back lounge to watch Blackadder before going to bed. And we're back. And it's a little bit of a weird split, that, because we've got the Hammersmith Odeon, which is a couple of pages of diary, um, and then we there's a little bit of a gap before we go off to the festival. Um, but the only question I was going to ask out of all of that was um, you mentioned something about a chap called Roy. Mm, Roy Hill. And um, you also mentioned that he'd written a musical about the fly. Now, I'm assuming that is The Fly, as in the horror movie. Yes, yes. If, if it was anyone else, I'd think, no, it's probably something else. But knowing Roy, it definitely will have been that. Only Roy could turn The Fly into a musical. <laughs> Do you know if it ever came to pass? Because at that point, you thought it, you, you even knew it was going to be in the Garrick Theatre. Yeah. Uh, I, it wasn't until I read the diary just now that I, that, that I recalled that and thought, oh, you know, what? It, the thing was, if, if, if that had have happened and gone ahead, I'm pretty sure I would have hurt heard about it and i'm fairly sure i'd have been invited to it because um i knew roy really well at that point and i would still call him a friend although we don't speak for we we tend to send one another new year's eve happy new year messages (laughs) and that's it you know and so, so if i look in my text history all my texts from Roy say "Happy New Year," <laughs> and and you know and so, and vice versa. But oh. we we don't you know we say Happy New Year to each other, but um, we don't talk during the year because I, I you know I just don't know what happened to him, and he probably doesn't know what happened to me. Mm. Um, and so I don't know if that that happened. I mean, when he told me about it. He told me about it as though it was a, a done thing and he was writing it and it was on at the Garrick and happy days, you know. Mm. But maybe somebody pulled it from under him or, 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 or maybe, he, maybe he got sick and, you know, threw himself out of a window. I, 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 it's all possible in our world. Mm. Um, or maybe it happened and I just never heard about it. I hope it did. So how did you know him then? Well, Roy Hill was, um, um, he was, um, he, there was a duo. He had a, he had a little kind of act uh, and it was him and a guy called Chaz Cronk who was, who was, and to my knowledge still is, the bass player from the Strobes. And they're both lovely people. Um, and somehow we'd heard about them. I think, how the hell did we hear about them? I don't know how we heard about them, but somebody got onto them. They used to do this little gig down in Twickenham. And Roy was just insanely funny. 
I mean, really, it, you know, they were one of those things where they they wrote songs and they performed songs and they wrote they wrote good songs, you know, good good little tunes, really 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 good tunes. And in another world, you know, in a fairer world, they'd be a household name and they'd have had loads of hits. But it just never happened for them. Uh, but in addition to the music that they would perform, Roy would talk in between the songs. And he was just, in my opinion, insanely funny and really, really filthy. And he would say things and, you you, you know, you would you would wither out front and just go, I can't believe he just said that, you know, to, to, to the public, you know, or, or my mum would be there. You know, you'd go, you'd take your mum or you'd take your wife and he'd say things and just go, oh, my God, you can't say that. Um, and I'm not even prepared to go there on the podcast. No, no, but, but no just, I don't think you should. Just really, really. <laughs> graphically filthy things but he would say them with such charm and good humour that you know even the women in the crowd are going oh that's dreadful isn't it um you, it would it wouldn't be offensive somehow but he, yeah. he would say dreadful things uh and so of course the, the rock and roll fraternity found him extremely funny and they opened for us on um, on more than one occasion, but they did an entire tour. I'm not sure which one it was. They were our opening act. And we all used to go and watch him from the wings every night because you never knew what he was going to say, and it was always hysterical. <laughs> so that's how we... That's, that's how I, and I also went... You know, I'd get in the car and drive down to Twickenham some nights to see him play in the pub because I, I enjoy them so much. Right. What were they called? Cry No More. They were called. Right. So, uh, yeah, Google them. It's probably everything is everywhere now, isn't it? So right. if you, yeah. you Google Cry No More, you can probably... They, they had a song called Oh Sharon. Um, right. um And I think, you know, he, 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 he wrote really interesting lyrics as well. Great, you know, proper talent. And I suppose at that point they didn't want to go with Chaz and Roy, did they? That would have been like... Chaz and Dave, yeah. Yeah, um, like a really shocking tribute act. Yeah, I don't know why they were called Cry No More. Right. Oh. I never asked. Or maybe I did and forgot. Well, if you think on, on when it comes around, you know, New Year's Eve, if you think on, put it put it on your little message. <laughs> last time, last time, last time I spoke to Roy, he was, <laughs> he was selling, he was, he was, he was doing the um, the ideal home exhibition, and he was selling irons. You know, ironing ironing systems. It's not. This isn't just an iron. This is a thing. You know, with a thick. You know, it's an all in one thing, and the board and the iron, and they're connected by this big tube. It's like a machine, and it's the ultimate ironing system. And he said, I'm selling that at the Ideal Home Exhibition. I said, that, you know, because I said, what are you up to? And he said, I'm selling, it. <laughs> I'm selling irons. Oh, you're doing what? <laughs> so that was the last time I heard from him. If anybody's got an update on Roy, please let us know. I think I need to meet Roy at some I, point. I can only imagine what he was saying to the housewives in the Ideal Home <laughs> Exhibition. It doesn't bear thinking about. Well, before we get ourselves into trouble, we'll we'll call it a day for <laughs> we'll call it a day for forty nine. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and uh, and and have and have a good week. Uh, enjoy the sunshine. Yes. It's going to be snowing, isn't it, in three days' time? That's what I'd heard. Yeah, early part of next week, it's snowy's forecast. Amazing. I know. And 20 degrees today in sunshine. I know, it doesn't make any sense, does it? I better put the top up on the mini before it snows. Oh, I'll be... I'll be. <laughs> It'll go crump when I climb in. <laughs> oh, that's got to be a good sound. <laughs> Oh, I'm going to leave it with that vision. That's, <laughs> a, right. that's a nice image to leave it with. <laughs> Snow-filled convertible. <laughs> right, toodaloo, folks. <laughs> yeah, take care. We'll see you next time. Yeah, see you soon. Thanks for subscribing, Ian Cheers. Ain't it great to be part of the gang? And David Max and Michael Darigo. There you go. Thanks for listening to the Corona Diaries. It featured Steve Hogarth with the insights and me, Ant Short, with the questions. If you enjoyed the podcast, please consider subscribing and maybe leaving a review as this will help others find it. You could even share with other like-minded souls, should the mood take you. This has been an A Short Stories production. <laughs>